The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s. It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past, but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding. Welcome back to The Link. This is producer David Yes, pod617.com. But more importantly, I re-welcome back to the show our hosts, Meredith Zinner, Farrah Pandith, and Diana Donovan. Guys, how you doing? Great. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Today's going to be a good day. So we have an amazing guest. The hosts were Kvelling over the the guest before we got started, so I don't want to leave you in any further suspense. So, Meredith, I turn it over to you to introduce our guest yes. this week. I would proudly like to introduce Her Excellency Eliza Byard. Yes. She is, first of all, a fantastic human being in general. She has also done a gazillion things. She started with the Center of Investigative Reporting, where she became an editor, writer, co-producer of Out of the Past, which premiered at Sundance and won the Audience Award for Best Documentary. And then she joined Glisten as Deputy Executive Director in 2001. She led programs including National Think Before You Speak anti-bullying program, LGBT ad campaigns, research and student organization efforts. And then in 2008, she became the organization's executive director. She just left said post and we are very, 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 very much looking forward to seeing what she has been doing is up to. And she's just, she's also served as Bloomberg's commission for runaway and homeless children. I mean, she has just been amazing, amazing, amazing. And also she serves at the board of trustees for America's prominence, she also <laughs> serves on the board of trustees for America's Promise Alliance, Sodexo's Diversity Adverse Advisory Board. Wow. You know, I can't even speak. The co- National <laughs> we should just let her talk. It's okay. Yeah. We're, you know, Meredith, we're out of time. We're out of time now. So uh, I get very, very excited. I love her so much. She's just made the world such a better place. Um, I love and the Pisces. Pisces. <laughs> Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a Leo. I just have to. What? It's, oh, it's this March. Oh, no. No, no. There's a. There, I, okay. Well, I'm just going to tell you for identity theft purposes, I'm very pleased that my birth date is wrong in my oh. Wikipedia entry. Oh, for you. That is oh, a smart. Jedi move. <laughs> I oh, well, I also had nothing to do with the creation of that Wikipedia entry. So I was like, oh, they got my birthday wrong. That's good. So, right. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the most important thing to get wrong. <laughs> Anyways, we are so happy 
So way too kind. To have I love Leos. <laughs> I also love Leos too. Tell us where you're you're joining us from. Well, I am currently I'm at home in Brooklyn, where you know we've all been anchored for a while, and I would just mention that there are two homeschoolers, an 11 year old and a 15 year old, and my cohort, my spouse is also working from home these days. So. Um, in case anybody, so people may wander in. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've set this up so they won't wander through the picture. Uh, but I'm in Brooklyn and um, just feeling spring starting to tease us a little bit, which is a wonderful thing. And I'll also say I'm actually in my last week at Glisten. This is my last week there after pretty much almost 20 years, and uh, so I'm having this sort of transition experience now. But during the pandemic. So it's all very interesting. And so we're catching you at a good time. Yes, you're all over the place. So Diana, you're out in California. And Farah, you are in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta, my mom's house. Yes. (laughs) Yes, right. And Meredith, are you in New York? You're in New York. Brooklyn. I'm from You guys are neighbors. Doing photographer. And David, you're up in Boston. That's right. This is what Facebook is really for. Besides radicalization, Facebook is good for knowing (laughs) where your friends are. (laughs) I I pay Eliza on the side to say these kinds of things. It's fantastic. If we could just spread that, that'd be great because I'm the only one who's out there doing this. So terrific. I believe Um, they're cute there too. Yeah, exactly too. Exactly too. But Eliza, I ask you this question because, I mean, you're in this major transition moment of your, you know, your career, 20 years. How are you feeling about everything? I mean, you know? Oh, boy. Yeah, you know what I, so it's been interesting to realize, like, I've had such a distinct professional experience of doing, working on one mission, one purpose in many different ways for 20 years. You know, one of the things I actually, in, in the 90s, I did a PhD in US history. And I used to think about the relationship between that training and being an executive director because when you know history is about trying to understand how change happens and then being an executive director is about trying to amass the resources like the right people the money the strategy and put them together to make those changes happen and the incredible thing about having done this for 20 years I actually I can see the arc I can see that arc and how it bends you know and I just realized that that's an incredible gift and something distinct about my career that I really appreciate. It also means that I'm having the experience of knowing that my particular leadership role on the issues I've worked on is done. And that's also an amazing, like, I feel at peace about that and then figure out what's next. But that's pretty remarkable. You, know, you can actually see the effects I'm sorry yep. to jump in. This is, I do this, Eliza, so get used to it. It can be very <laughs> annoying. But yeah. just so our listeners are are clear, Glisten is devoted to, sure. I believe, make, making sure all students have a safe place to live. But tell us, actually, start with the acronym because we sure. can guess. I can guess no, what the G and L are. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But but Glisten is focused on LGBTQ issues in K through twelve education. So. Really, the point of our work at Glisten, it was started actually by, actually, Richard Barbieri, Dick Barbieri, was the first board chair of Glisten. Milton, and Milton Academy actually hosted the first Glisten conference that was ever held, which was very, very secretive back no in idea. the early 90s. And I didn't know that either until I was actually working there. 
I had no idea there was a Milton connection. But Milton Academy, I'm sorry, but it, so Milton played this role. Glisten was created by teachers and parents and students who were very concerned about the ways that K-12 schools were both harming LGBTQ youth and replicating all kinds of oppressive structures in education. So the work of GLSEN is about first safety, making sure that LGBTQ youth are not getting beaten up, two, actual systemic changes to create schools that serve the whole child, including LGBTQ youth. And then really through that work, hopefully helping to build a culture of respect for all people by disrupting the transmission of prejudice from one generation to the next. And I think the wonderful, one of the wonderful, and I started, so just to say, I, my mother was an early volunteer because she was a teacher, a high school teacher. I came out to her in college, although she wasn't very surprised. And when I came out to her, she started looking around and thinking like, I don't really know that many gay people. I don't have gay friends. Oh, look, it's a gay teachers group. I can go meet some gay people. And so she was an early volunteer and that's actually how I got connected. But one of the wonderful gifts of GLSEN was when Fada, you and I connected around your work around radicalization, thinking about youth organizing and the ways that keeping young people connected to each other and to their community is sort of the stem cell of all good things, right? It can be. As long as the community no, but I, I think that's such a valuable and important point. Yeah. It is today in the 21st century mindset. I think a lot of people can't remember how far we have. We haven't gotten to where we need to be on these issues, clearly, oh, but boy. how far we yeah. have come. And I should say for, for our listeners also, I mean, I reached out to Eliza when I was doing my research for my book. But Eliza is actually in my book because the programs that GLSEN developed for schools can be replicated and used for a wide sense of, you know, consciousness raising and safety and connectivity with peers. And I, w- I mean, I wish I had a magic wand that we could take those programs and put them in every school system in the world, because it's so, so important to be thinking in the constructive ways you are. But I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's overlap and a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think that. And, you know, look, I just in terms of Glisson's founder started the first club that was known as a gay straight alliance. And these clubs are now generally referred to as gender and sexuality alliances. But GSAs and supporting GSAs has been one of Glisson's core purposes. And when I joined Glisson in 2001, we knew of about 300 GSAs in different parts of the country. During my time, and these numbers wax and wane, but we had it, we got... 10,000 GSAs registered with GLSEN. And that just means the number of GSAs that choose to let us know they exist. And that was about, and so over, and we've also been able to demonstrate through a research program that GSA is actually having a GSA at a school is an indicator the whole school is safer. It provides huge emotional effective support for LGBTQ students in the school. And it is more likely to support a group of students in becoming active advocates to make their school a better place. And for GLSEN, the core purpose was student organizing. And let's help you think about how this club can be a base for making an ask of the principal or looking for a policy change or lobbying members of Congress. So over time, I mean, there's just, there's a lot there and you don't want to drift too far from, from the Milton of it all. Did Milton, did Milton not have a GSA? 
I, I know when we went to Mil- when we went to Milton, it was still illegal to be gay in oh this my country. God. Okay. Um, yes. So That's when so we went to Milton, okay. right? My I used to joke. My graduation present from Milton was Bowers versus Hardwick, which was the Supreme Court decision that affirmed that states could make it illegal to be gay or lesbian in this country. And that was 1986. And there was absolutely no in in L.A. There was something known as Project 10. I didn't mm-hmm. know that, but as a Milton student, but oh, no, there was no GSA. Milton was early to have a GSA, and mm-hmm. I did go back to Milton long before I was involved with Glisson. I went back to Milton in the 90, early 90s and I met with the students who were part of Milton's GSA at the time, which meant a lot to me. But, oh my gosh, there was nothing like that. So All they the, just started it from scratch. They just did, they did it themselves. See, the, the first club that we know of was in, was at Concord Academy where Kevin Jennings, Glisson's founder, was teaching and Kathy Henderson, another founder of Glisten, was at Exeter. So the first name of Glisten was actually the Gay and Lesbian Independent School Teachers Network. It was Glisten, very literally. And the reason that Mr. Barbieri was involved was because he was the chair of the New England, was it the Teachers Union? No, it was the New England Independent School Independent Schools Association that agreed to host the first conference where teachers who were not out at school because there were no anti-discrimination protections slunk into a back room to talk to each other about this idea. And my dad didn't actually believe this when I was in college. I was like, dad, I can get fired for being a lesbian in the States in this country. Wow. And frankly, that is, that remained true until the decision that happened this past spring in June, 2021, the Supreme court affirmed that Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people are protected by existing federal law. So, you know, on the other hand, we now know from our work with the CDC, for years we campaigned to get LGBTQ youth included in the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is conducted by the CDC. And we got the questions in, in, I guess, 2015 and 2017 were the first administrations of it where they were in and you know 2017 15 percent of the high school population of the school high school population of the united states identified as lesbian gay bisexual or not sure 15 percent and and about two percent they guessed from different surveys and responses about two percent identify as transgender anyway again drifting from the topic but you know so much of what we do, the stem cell of it is these people are part of your community and need to be treated like every other member of the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so back to what you were saying, Fada, like the, the, there is a common stem from which all these branches flow and they're different, very specific challenges to making that happen. But if you can get to sort of the common roots of it, I think you can replicate you know, I think for me, those are things like respect for all, yeah. honoring youth voices and partnering with youth creativity. This is something that people have a really hard time with. And thinking critically about structures and how structures harm people. And I think this is the conversation about racism, about Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hate, and which I think of as very distinct, right? Yeah. You've got to think of like there's the, the phobia part and there's the hate yeah. part. Anyway. 
And things have changed so much in 20 years. To go from when I started with GLSEN, we were still convincing people that LGBTQ youth exist in elementary and middle and high schools, right? And now we know, and the government is responsible and actually has a program at CDC Dash for dealing with health disparities and risk factors for LGBTQ plus youth. You know, you want to build it into the system so the system has to take care of it. But yeah, Milton was different. And, and it was hard being in Milton. It was hard. I mean, it was hard for so many different people for different reasons. But one of the reasons, and I know this is painful for my mom, one of the reasons I wanted to attend a boarding school was to have the independence of going to school and not having to come out to my parents because whether or not I dated anybody or whether I, you know, why don't you have a boyfriend? And I, I did have boyfriends. 67% of my boyfriends were gay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember your boyfriends. You dated some very sweet guys. So sweet. Yeah, really and, and guys. some of them came out later. Yep, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you remember my boyfriends? I, mean, I remember everything, Eliza. It's a little scary. A- I won't go through them, but I, do- I totally remember them. I mean, we were all sort of... Everyone knew what everyone was doing, particularly the couples. That's very true. At Milton, That's there, very there true. weren't very many couples, and I think they were sort of public. So I remember That's two true. of them. I don't know how many there were, but I remember well, two. <laughs> well, so, so I really appreciate that. And, and that's true. As I cast my mind back, we were all very alert to each other. Mm-hmm. It was a relative, it's such a small community in so many ways. Well, just for example, in my first year at Milton, and I was dating someone, and I'll leave his name out of it, because I don't know how out he is to everybody now, but I was with one of these folks, and we went to see Death Trap, and Death Trap was screening in the, what was the AV, that auditorium, where we all had mm-hmm. class for English and all those things. So anyway, we were in there, watching Death Trap, sitting next to each other, not out to each other in any way, but I know now that he's gay, and, and there's the moment in Death Trap where Christopher Reeve and Michael, what's his name, kiss each other. And you should have heard the response in that room. It was terrifying. Everybody in that room shrieked. The boys started jumping up and talking about how they were going to walk out. And everyone was yelling about how disgusting it was. And the two of us are sitting there, not out to each other. But I knew for me, right now, I was like, oh, my God. Wow. This is like the worst thing I've ever experienced and you know and I don't think I and I think looking back on all our classmates we were conditioned to respond that way I don't you know I know that there were very good people in that room and I but that is a policing mechanism that we were taught early and you knew that what you were supposed to do when you saw two people of the same sex kissing, you knew what to do. Everyone mm-hmm. in that room knew what to do. They did it instantly. But Eliza, that's <laughs> and such it a, had its intended so, effect. I, I love that you said it like that because that learning mechanism is how you learn to do the same thing about race, about heritage, about whatever the whatever the other is. You know, these are learned things. And it's so frightening because a child, as we all know, is born innocent. And they learn how to hate. They learn how to hate. They learn how to respond. They learn what they're supposed to do. And in some cases, they learn how to be violent because they hate. And And so um, much of that is based in fear. I think we learn to be very afraid of these things that are different or things that we don't understand. And then we learn to react against it in a hateful way. And I think the, the, and I think, 
kind of what's interesting when I hear you say that, there's part of me that wants to push back, but I think it's true. And the difference becomes when the person who is transmitting that fear is doing it on purpose versus mm-hmm. when you're just receiving signals from the culture that are ambient, that are training you about how to think. Because what I think is such a challenge for our culture right now with the very active activation of fear is that we're finally living in the moment where we understand that some people would like us to be afraid to the point of violence Mm -hmm. and they are doing that on purpose. So yes, I totally agree. And I think it is, I think that it is terrifying if you, and what we've tried to do again, it's terrifying if you're a boy of 14 or 15 and someone's going to call you a faggot. And that's where, you know, what I, try to say often this is funny it's taken me back about 10 years in my career when I was much more focused on anti-bullying as opposed to some of the other structural stuff I would say look bias-based bullying is how adults put weapons in the hands of children if adults don't mitigate the fear of being called a faggot and they reinforce the power of that word, they're handing a bully a weapon. Because one thing we know about what bullies from research is that bullying is not about hate. Bullying is about a deep need in a child who is not receiving things that they need to express power over somebody else. So if you give, so what bullies are good at is figuring out who in a community is not going to be defended by others. And when you think about the way people talk about LGBTQ issues, that's how you let the bully know who to go after. Mm -hmm. And so in different communities, the balance might be different. In different communities, it might be about different characteristics. You know, in Dearborn, it's probably about Muslim youth. Or one of our earliest and most powerful allies at Glisten was the Sikh community. Because Sikhs are so visually out there for mm-hmm. other students to go after. And so I learned early on, we did things with the Sikh coalition from day one. So you're absolutely right. You know, children act out of fear and desire for evil. And that's translated to them by either adults in their lives or the culture at large. And uh, those things have shifted so much. But, you know, but then again, you think about like just being in high school, going to the movies. What do you learn? I don't want to take us too far away again from that, but because Milton, there's so many things in Milton that were those moments of things we were supposed to learn. You know, why is the canon so important? Why do we have whole classes that are just about Shakespeare? You know, whatever it might have been, learning lots. You used a word that is an excellent depiction of how I think about the ecosystem, and you used the word ambient. What is yeah. And I think that's so powerful. I wanted to ask you a little bit to, to drill down just a little bit more on that in terms of the other ambient things that we know that are in our world now. And we don't have to get political if you don't want to. But, but you know, from my perspective and my work, I mean, language obviously matters, how things are framed, what they do, how even reporters report on things, what they choose to say, how they choose to say it. But what else is happening? What are the other ambient, you know, forces that you see that are affecting the way in which we absorb 
who we are, identity, and how others see each other. In- well, I think a couple of things about that. I think that by the time I, so I was someone who came out to myself early, which is a distinct experience. You know, I know a lot of folks who are LGBTQ who really don't have that realization for themselves until later in life. But by the time I came to Milton, I knew very clearly that I was a lesbian. And what I think is interesting to reflect on Fada is like, I also knew that was a problem. (laughs) And so how did I know? Because my parents were not particularly attuned to anything positively or negative. My parents are, my father was what they call a Lindsay Republican in New York. So he was sort of a, a moderate on social issues and a fiscal conservative, a real conservative, not like a free marketeer, like an actual conservative. My mother was like taking her Chapin class to go see Angela Davis speak. So like my mom was sort of coming out of this other, but married to a Lindsay Republican. And so, but they were, so there was no, but then again, my, you know, my grandparents made occasional genteel jokes about men who were too effeminate or women who weren't married or, you know, you watch TV and there's nobody. I think the absence as much as anything, you know, one thing for us to remember, like in this country, it was a big deal when Barack Obama was elected, you began to see black people in advertisements. And that was new. And now I think it's much more common to actually see like a black family in a car ad, right? So that was new 10, 12 years ago. So think about the absence. And and now like you see rainbow Oreos, for God's sake, and pink washing. (laughs) As we pink washing, as we call it, is a real thing. Like the pink washing of capitalist institutions is a real thing, but that was very new. And so the it's so ambient. Who's represented? Who's not? In school, you, you guys heard the concept of windows and mirrors in the curriculum and the hidden curriculum. Okay, so windows and mirrors is an idea that was really fully articulated in the eighties about what students need for healthy identity development and empathy. You need a window onto the experience of others and you need a mirror for yourself. Right. right? Yeah. And that's a really important concept. So part of what Glisten campaigns for is curricular inclusion, which is still one of the, t- and there are, I want, I just want people to know in terms of our current context, we've seen a huge backlash at the state level because we've had so much success and there are, bills in many states where they're trying to outlaw having queer inclusive curricular content and books about trans people there there are laws out there that are saying that you know in order to keep transgender girls from dominating girls sports which does not happen by the way there are bills in 15 states that would say anyone could challenge a girl's gender on a team and she would have to have a genital examination by a doctor in order to prove that she is biologically female to guard. So just on that one, but that's happening right now in Tennessee. There are 15 bills in Tennessee ranging from restrictions on the curriculum to gender affirming quote unquote examinations of girls playing girls athletics. So every single level. 
Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including t-shirts, mugs, and shout outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now back to the show. Eliza, yeah. what really makes me crazy on hearing this, I mean, I, I, it is, you know, and from my lens, I mean, we go around the world evaluating countries on a whole host of different things, <laughs> including, you know, freedom to yes. be who you are, right? And yes. we're, we're looking at 50 states in the District of Columbia, and we, we don't have that same, you know, response. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, we... <clears throat> One of the things that I've been most proud of at Glisten is that we've, we've developed an international initiative where we partner with nonprofits in other countries to produce one of our central things is the National School Climate Survey, which we've been, of LGBTQ youth, we've been doing every two years since 1999 to track progress and see what works and blah, blah, blah. We're about to publish a National School Climate Survey from Russia, (laughs) done with a partner in Russia. And we have National School Climate Surveys from Ukraine, Eastern Europe, where you know the stuff is the worst. But yes, and actually my senior uh, project was a paper that I did with Mrs. Starmer about the idea of the United States as a city on a hill. And where did awful idea um, that we were on a hill? And I think probably the most basic part of that Fada, and I think of your work with the State Department, I mean, that was your job, right? Like, a, like to convince the Muslim world, the Muslim world, that if there's a Muslim world, you have to go there, but like the Muslim world, that we were a worthy partner, and this is a place you want because we're terrific. But uh, yeah, and the probably the hardest part, and I think what's really important about this historical moment, is that we do need to understand that so many of our systems were developed around the idea of perpetuating the oppression of black people in this country. I mean, we have to understand, I did a PhD in U.S. history at Columbia and I got to study with Eric Foner, Barbara Fields, some of the, and and some of my colleagues there are now leaders in this field, Martha Jones, Erica Dunbar, just incredible historians of the black experience in America. And it is simply a fact that our laws were built around the idea that black people were different and subordinate to white people. And there's a historical fact to accept. And then there's the question of what's our responsibility for that fact, right? And this is the whole journey that I think every white person in America needs to go through at their own pace. But it is different, like it, I accept that I learned to be racist through those anti, those ambient processes that also taught me that I was a lesbian and that was a problem, <laughs> that I was a lesbian. And we have to wrestle with that, you know? So, yes. So I think it is in general an important moment to recalibrate our relationship with the world, right? Now that Donald Trump has destroyed our relationship that we had, and we have to accept that we can't, I mean, 
you know, Biden was speaking at, I forget the conference, but that, you know, Macron and Merkel made it very clear, we're not welcome back on the same footing. They're yeah. glad we're back. We're not going to have the same role in the world. Anyhow, and I think, you know, for people who went to Milton, Milton is one of those institutions that was built around the idea that we were being trained for very specific big things. Uh-huh. And there are aspects of that are wonderful and there are aspects of that are terrible. <laughs> and I think about, right, like, I remember we had a class, right? Go for it. I, my dad's gay. And I remember he had such a fear of coming out. He was an established professor of medicine, doctor, blah, blah. And he was in denial till he was 40. And uh-huh. I sensed it at Milton. But nowhere did I see any gayness anywhere in Milton or any mm. any variation. Yeah, were there ever even any teachers that were out when we were at Milton? I don't recall. I just, Diana, I want to come back to your point of like, we were all very aware of each other. So lots of gay teachers at Milton, but they were not out. <laughs> and, you know, they were, there was a guy named Paul Manette who wrote a novel that was a Roman uh, clay about Milton, about Canton Academy, that was about being a gay teacher at Milton in the 70s. And he had left by the time that I was there. But, oh, yeah, there were gay teachers at Milton, but they were deeply closeted. And Didn't um, they all hang out together? It's funny. I don't want to name names, but I sort of remember them. Maybe I had this, like, other way of sensing things. I sort of remember well, a group of yeah, them. Yes, they did, but it was a problem for them. It was dangerous for them. And I – so one of the most amazing things that anyone ever did for me was my senior year, I lived in Goodwin House, and – there was a young teacher living in the sort of, there were three house parent apartments and the young teacher was living in the small apartment down in the basement level where the study hall was. And her name was Becky center. I think she was a track coach. If I remember right. Anyway, she, I don't know if she was lesbian or not, but what she did for me and senior, no one talked about any of this. So I didn't come out to anybody except for, Mr. Bandarab in human sexuality, which is another story. But Becky Center <clears throat> decided to invite me to a dinner party. I had no idea what was going on. And I wasn't out to anybody. I had borrowed her apartment to have a out phone call. Me the privacy of having a phone call in an apartment. I didn't tell her it was about, but I was calling the gay aunt a Milton graduate, someone who left. I'm like, I'm a lesbian. I think it's going to be terrible. And she was sort of reassuring me. And, and Becky had lent me her apartment. Sometime later, I never talked to her about it. She invited me to a dinner. And when I arrived at dinner party in her apartment, I door. There were six teachers there, five of whom I know were lesbians, but nobody was out to each other. Not a word was said about what was going on other than I was having dinner with these people and they were revealing to me just the happiness of their lives. They had these friendships and they were just talking. And the most amazing thing was talking about the eighties, David, I was sitting there with a Rubik's cube at one point. I didn't know what to do. I was like, I was thrilled and terrified. And I was sitting on the couch fiddling with the, I was never good at Rubik's cube. I never could solve a Rubik's cube. (laughs) 
So I'm sitting there with a Rubik's Cube fiddling around, and one of these teachers, and again, I'm not naming any of them because I don't know what their lives are like, but I remember them distinctly. And this one person who was I, a coach who I thought hung the moon, she said, ah, uh, Eliza's playing the Rubik's Cube. You know that Eliza, she's going to solve it in two minutes. And I was thinking, okay, I, like she said that, and I'm thinking, uh-huh, I'm never going to solve this Rubik's Cube. I'm just playing and watching. And I did. I wow. <laughs> That's an incredible story. That's awesome. It, it was 100%, like, unbelievable, like met moments when the universe speaks to you. Incredible that that teacher, that yeah. house parent reached out Took to that you in risk. that way. I Took love that. that. Risk. And then all those teachers showed up for me. It was the most loving thing and the most loving thing to like make it like not about me. Yes. And just, it was so, it was the most incredible expression of care. If this were Hollywood, one of your dinner companions would turn to you immediately after you solved the Rubik's Cube and said, you see, Eliza, sometimes the pieces do fall into place. <laughs> and, and if this were right. Oprah, we would be like, oh, guess who's here, Eliza? It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the guests who came to the dinner party. Yeah. And like, where are they now? Well, you can I, thank you know, them. I do hope, you know, I do hope that I get a chance to thank them because it made a huge difference in my life. And, and at the time, it was a brave thing to do. Actually, I think the one teacher who may have been out at Milton was Ted Allen, who then died of, I believe, of AIDS very soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure also that these teachers may have been out to each other. I think the other thing that, I mean, sadly, talk about, talking about the bad things in Milton, is that I think that uh, Ray Bono and the place that he played in the life of the school and what an awful, toxic presence he was I mean I didn't know it at the time about him but I did know and again I'm not going to say any names but I I was aware of mostly straight teachers who were preying on Milton students at the time that we were there and I think that as good Gen Xers we're also cynical about it which I think actually I you know I anyway and what made me angry even when I was at Milton was that I was aware of these lesbians who were facing such pressure to be closeted when the people who were doing predatory damage to young people were straight men, a couple of straight women, and this one guy, Ray Bono, who was screwing it up for everybody. And that made me furious. I'm like, these lesbians are absorbing the need to be silent and invisible. And all these other people are misbehaving. And I think we didn't have the language to think of ourselves as children. I know that when I look back at some of those instances, and I think to myself, the way I remember it was so-and-so's having an affair with a teacher. That is how I remember it. That is not true. That's not what was happening. You're so right. And it's terrible to think that the, the way it was constructed in our minds was as if consent, a young as if kid had any yeah it, it's a really yeah it's a terrible thing to that remember was, that just, was very vivid diana like i was like oh these are my friends who are sleeping with teachers yes. because they're so grown mm-hmm. up so yeah. i was having an affair right yeah eliza let me, let me ask yeah. you one question and then guys i encourage sure. you to, to come if you guys have like maybe one or two more questions we do need to move on but my question eliza is how far behind was Milton, in your opinion. I remember I, I happened to go to Penn 
which I don't know where Penn falls on the scale of cultural awareness or <laughs> progressive thinking, but I do remember that my freshman year when I got there in 1990, there was at least some presence of gay and lesbian groups. There were at least some campus leaders who were known to be out yeah. and, and to be gay. It was still uh, not the norm, and there were still you know, the slurs. You would still hear them in certain places. But was there a, a turning point right around that time after we graduated high school, or was, was Milton just painfully behind, or what do you think? Oh, no. I think that Milton was right on track. The thing that was happening through the 80s and to the 90s, and by 1990, you were starting to see more, like the GSA at Concord. That was a big deal. More students were coming out. I think the huge thing was the AIDS crisis and the way that literally having a situation of life or death that was, I remember, yeah, the AIDS crisis changed everything. I remember Heather Ewing and I were both in Goodwin House. She won't mind me bringing her into the conversation, but she and I were always the first ones up for breakfast. And we would get up really early in the morning and we, I'd meet her downstairs at the dinner table and we'd go get the newspaper and sit and read the paper at like 6.30 or something crazy, 6 o'clock. And I just remember vividly seeing the first stories in the Globe about GRID, gay-related immune disorder, in mm. like 82, 83. And it's changed everything. It provided an urgent impetus to people to come out. It brought the community together around political advocacy. It made silence equal death. And, and so by 1990, we were in the, you know, ACT UP was the first wave of desperate reaction. And then you began to have things like Queer Nation. And so this was building on years of gay and lesbian rights activism. And then the AIDS crisis just, took everything to a completely new place. You know, I remember when Rock Hudson died of AIDS. I remember when Magic Johnson said that he had AIDS and that was in 91 or 92 yeah, Rock, I was in San Francisco. Yeah, something. it was in, that was in 91. I was just looking that up. Yep. <laughs> and Magic didn't exactly carry the flag for gay rights, but it was such a thunderclap to see someone of that celebrity get it. And we actually talked about Rock Hudson in a, pre in a previous podcast because that happened while we were in high, in high school. Yeah. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. have you seen the Netflix show, It's a Sin, or are you aware of it? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's, these guys love when I bring up TV recommendations and go on for about 30 <laughs> minutes. No, but it is a, you know, a limited series on Netflix and it, it, it just chronicles the lives of young gay men in in New York. No, I'm sorry, in London. It's just in London yeah. in uh, right around that time, right around the time when AIDS first became discovered really. So, but it's brilliantly done. Yep. Yeah. I'm, it I'm sounds amazing. And that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think Dave is being paid by Netflix, frankly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, because, just, yeah. I was just going to say that title the title itself just brings back the music so vividly mm -hmm. because music was, that's the other thing you were asking about how we got to 1990, where we were behind. No, I, I think Milton actually was as, you know, Mr. Barbieri's involvement and Milton hosting the conference, you know, Milton was right in the, the middle of the front in a lot of ways. And, and I do think, I mean, you know, this, even the sort of hokiness of things like dare to be true or, you know, serve a purpose higher than oneself 
the sort of typical Protestant elite mottos for what you're supposed to be doing with your education are useful, are useful in that respect and actually help. Yep. Far, by the way, I don't have to, I don't get paid by Netflix, but every time I say Netflix, I do have to play the sound effect. So (laughs) if you say it again. So so can we, I want to really sort of jump a little bit because you've spent 20 years in your career doing Glisten and everything about the, well, not 24 years doing that, but, but you're at a transition. 19.54. Yes. Right. So how are you thinking about your next chapter? I mean, what kinds of work do you want to be doing? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think the simplest, the simplest way to encapsulate it is that I'm really interested in finding a role of significant impact and influence without having to manage people. <laughs> <laughs> and will it be in the public space? Or do you think you're going to? Oh, kind of- I, you know, I'm really interested in work in the public sector. It, I'm open to you know, I think what's interesting is that I probably am not going to be in the nonprofit sector again, unless it's on the philanthropic side. Probably, you know, I've spent time in therapy talking about the fact that Mrs. Herzog once said something about this class contains the first woman president of the United States. And everyone turned and looked at me. And I was like, how the hell do I live up to that? I mean, what can I possibly do to live up to that other than be president? So anyway, just say it. But yeah, so I definitely... What's been really interesting to me over 20 years, and I'm glad to have had 20 years, is to see how you bring public, private, and nonprofit, and civil society, nonprofit together in different configurations to achieve different ends. I've really come to appreciate how harnessing the power of the private sector, and in particular, multinational corporations, actually can help make progress possible in very difficult places. It's a delicate balance because, you know, you know, in terms of my politics, I think corporate, you know, improperly regulated corporate capitalism is a deep danger to the planet as well as to humans. But also, I also think that corporate capitalism is capable of great innovation and the production of good. And so it's this line, right? So what I've come to really appreciate is how, you can operate either public, private, nonprofit, and be part of that dance in different ways. So I'm excited to think about it. I also think, and this is why I support reasonable taxation, governments are the only entities that can do things at scale with accountability to the public. What I think, right? So I think it is important to have functioning public sector institutions that are adequately funded by all the entities that profit by them, including corporations, right? So, so that's all that to say. I'm open to anything, but well, I don't I, want you and have I need to, to. You and I need to scheme because you know, obviously, <laughs> our work is, as we've talked about on the podcast, overlaps. But I think anybody reasonable in the space of of changing and fixing the societal sinkholes that exist understand that it cannot just be one sector that is doing this. It is so important that we leverage what we now know in the 21st century about tools that can actually help some of these things. And two, as you say, understanding that the corporate sector has a much bigger place in this solution set than they ever have. And I've been, you know, I've hit walls also myself, Eliza, around 
fighting hate and extremism and trying to get corporates to understand this because for them it's terrorism and it's not something that their their boards want to deal with. And I pushed back and I said, this is hate and extremism that impacts society. And when you have a Boston marathon bombing or you have something else, business right. is closed down. Like th- this affects your bottom line also. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So you and I need to have a conversation. I think that there's an option here for ESG plus with a, a concept on ES- ESG plus where the S is more around social issues that you and I can understand that there's value in, in corporates taking hold of. Absolutely. And, you know, and everyone recognizing that basically the nonprofit sector, the sort of direct service nonprofit sector has been used as a way to shrink government by externalizing the responsibility of government to take care of people, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I think that those nonprofits that are dealing with social issues and advocacy, rather than taking care of basic needs that really, I think government should be doing at scale, you know, and within that, I think the private sector begins is beginning to see that in the collapse of things like te- what's happening in Texas and Mississippi after the snowstorm. But also, Fado, just thinking about how it comes back to youth work yes. in ways that I think can be made extremely familiar and comfortable for corporate entities because it's like there part of this is not rocket science and maybe that's the most hopeful thing of all because if you allow children to grow up together with mutual respect and with the supports they need to lead healthy lives and healthy relationships to adults and with all the indications that you care about them like funding schools and paying teachers and you will raise generations of people who feel a connection to each other that is hard to disrupt. And there'll be less mental I mean, illness. There'll be less yeah. suicide. There'll be less. I yeah. Mean, it costs, it costs the society so much. I, I, and, yeah. and I think well, that, sorry, go ahead. Meredith. Very briefly, just what you mentioned, the word empathy, I feel that is so lost in our society right now. And I think that's one of the most, human and important ways in which we communicate on a heart-to-heart basis and can fully understand the enormity of these situations and the reality in people's hearts. I feel that the lack of empathy is also so detrimental to our society because it shuts things down and empathy opens up and you can say, oh, I see you. I see you for this and I can respect that. And, you know, together we can create blah, blah, blah. And just the acceptance and empathy, I think is such an underused thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's huge. And I think, you know, particularly when it comes to racism, when it comes to understand it, deeply understand, like, like think about what it means to a black child in Philadelphia, I mean, I was on a panel with a, an amazing principal, a black woman from Philadelphia, who had been running this public school for 15 years. And she said, you know, when I first walked in the doors of this school, 92% black population of students, she, she walked into her first sort of assembly with everybody. And she said, you know, you know, welcome to school. And this girl got up in the back and she said, excuse me, miss, 
you call this a school? And what she was expressing was what she felt about the physical plant that she was required to go to every day because we, we do not fund our schools adequately because we don't care about the kids who are there. Black kids in schools do not receive the money. They can see it. And think about what that means. Think about the issue of having empathy for the genetic inheritance of stress on black bodies in this country that causes, basically blackness is a comorbidity for COVID because black people are so much more likely to have diabetes and heart disease, live with, you know, with all the stress hormones racing through their bodies all the time because they're scared of the cops, mm-hmm. right? And then we put a police officer in the public school with the children, many of whom have gotten that, the talk from their parents about what to do if the police stop them so they don't get killed. Like, I wish that for everyone who has a lot of energy around, I'm not racist, or everyone who has a lot of energy around, it's not my fault because it wasn't me, could just stop and try to absorb the enormity of the black experience in this country and have empathy for it and then act from that place. I mean, my God, how much more quickly would we make some progress? I, you know, it's, yeah, it just, it would make an enormous difference. But I mean, there was a student who, I don't remember if he succeeded, but in our freshman year, a student who hung himself in a boy's dorm, who was, I think, Latino or Afro-Latino. And, you know, his experience of coming to Milton led him to hang himself. And we had classmates at Milton you know, I had a, a teammate on the girls' basketball team whose boyfriend was later profiled in a book. A boyfriend, I think he went to Exeter and he was shot and killed in his home neighborhood. And, you know, just the, the contrast of experience. And remember, and then Celeste Vega spoke at, we still had the sex segregated graduations, talk about ambient messages where all the girls were wearing white. Yeah. ambient messages and <laughs> Celeste did part of her graduation speech in Spanish to her parents because her parents didn't she spoke to them in their native language and so yeah sometimes when I'm you know my my work calls on me to deal directly and part of what I've done over my time at Clisson is deal directly with people who really disagree you know I went on I I, I Years ago, I was on Bill O'Reilly. I was on Hannity's show when Hannity had a show. I'm sorry, not Hannity. Pat Buchanan had a show on MSNBC or Buchanan and Press. So I would go on these shows and talk directly to people who thought I was a freak, if not worse. I hope you really, and, gave, I hope you really gave them all a what for. I will tell you, I, I won every time. <laughs> I'm sure. Being in contact with people who denigrate you and being in kind something about being that bridge and being willing to do that work. And I know for me, one of the biggest lessons of my work is I know how much of how much margin I have for that difficult work because I'm white. And I think the biggest lesson for me of all of my work at Glisten, you know, I've learned how to make things happen. I've learned how to make things happen at scale, but on a personal level, I've come to understand that it is important to accept that I am racist because I was raised that way and that we owe reparations to black people in this country. And that is just something that, I don't know, I wouldn't have learned it 
if I hadn't been through the things I've been through and understood how the queer movement in this country has been subsidized by its whiteness. But I'm not hopeless about it. I just feel like it's something we all need to accept if we're white or not black. So anyway, there's my thought. (laughs) Very powerful, Eliza. Eliza. Thank you for that. Thank you. We know that you've recently departed Glisten, but are there things our listeners should know about how to support the organization? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Glisten, you can learn more about Glisten at glisten.org. And we have chapters in many states where people can actually get engaged and be part of the outreach to schools and support to GSAs in their own community and speak, speak as local stakeholders. We really, financial contributions are hugely welcome and very important to what we do. And I think I would just say about Glisten and its future is that, as you probably hear reflected in my comments here, the next phase of Glisten's development is really going to be about deepening an anti-racist approach to, and that work will be led by people who, I I could not lead that work in the way it needs to be led right now. And there's new leadership coming to the fore. And I'm really proud of that, and I hope that people will support it and learn more about it. And thanks for the opportunity to put that out there. Awesome. We'll include all that information in the show notes, listeners, if you want to check that out. We are up against the clock a little bit here, but we have time for a quick round of Do You Remember, where we will play some clips from the past with with our lovable Fake Eurythmics soundtrack here. All right. We're going to look at commercials from the 80s in this particular edition of Do You Remember? So let's go back and start with uh, a simple one, but it's a classic. I made the donuts. We make them at least twice every day. Let's make the donuts. Not a few guys like supermarkets. Today, the donuts. Time to make the donuts. But up to 52 varieties. The donuts. (laughs) Time to make the donuts. So that's, of course, we grew up with the time to make the donuts guy, right? I mean, yeah, um, we sure did. Yeah. Didn't we all say that at some point? Yeah, yeah. Time to make I, the donuts. I literally still wake up and think, time to make the donuts. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I am not kidding. Yeah. I don't make the donuts. Yeah. I make tea, but I wake up and it's in my head. Time yeah. to make Absolutely. the donuts. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, they actually had they had a, a phony. Well, it was phony or real. I don't know. Retirement party for the make the donuts guy, and I think gave out free donuts that day. But uh, that's amazing. Yeah, he deserved it. That's amazing. All right, here is a commercial from 1985, and I think we'll agree this one doesn't hold up that well. Hey, you see the girl in the white bikini with the long legs and the great body and the diet sprite? Yeah. Well, where do you think she got that diet sprite? Are you kidding? You can get Diet Sprite anywhere. But that's the new Diet Sprite, the one with 100% NutraSweet. Diet Sprite has 100% NutraSweet? It does now, along with the great taste of lime. Wow. So where do you think she got the Diet Sprite? I don't know. But she was born with everything else. It's only Diet Sprite for you. Oh, boy. I mean... <laughs> Talk about oh a little yes, objectification just, for us, ambient, thanks, Dave. Ambient lessons. I was just gonna say <laughs> he keyed that lessons. up because of the uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, ambient lessons. Nutrisweet was disgusting. I, I <laughs> yeah, do remember that. Yeah, didn't it cause cancer? It was cancer. There's something outrageous. Yes. I don't know. Well, we were also in the transition moment between Cab and Diet Coke. And Diet Pepsi. Yeah. Yes. So, because I think seniors, juniors and seniors are drinking Tab. 
And then we got Diet Pepsi at the, at the snack bar. And I used to have a Diet Pepsi (laughs) every day at recess. I'd have my Diet Pepsi. Maybe the Coca-Cola people didn't distribute on campus. I don't remember. I think I I wasn't allowed to drink soda. I think Cab was Coke. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, yeah, no. The Diet Coke came out, I think, yeah, I think after we graduated. They had the new, we talked about on this podcast, the new Coke experiment, which we lived through, which was terrible. We, anyway. we survived. Yes, we did. But we also survived the fact that when we were in high school, there was a room designated for smoking. I know. Oh. The butt room. The butt room. The butt room. The butt room. Which I would go into and hang with people. Yes. Well, nobody, nobody, did any, nobody did any enforcing or policing of the butt room. I never had permission either, but I would gravitate that way just to see what was going on. It was sort of a fun place to hang out. It was like the cool place to hang. For my senior project, project along with some friends, Steve Butzel, Doug Carver, we did a a video kind of uh, news show about Milton or whatever you want to call it, but it it involved me. It had a humorous uh, section of me going in to the butt room like it was going into the lion's (laughs) den or going into this this deep, dark chasm. I remember that. You went in there. But yeah, I remember that. But and I was trying to ask some questions. Is it just the smoking or is it some kind of culture that you share? It was a place where you could go and hang that wasn't the student center. Right. Exactly. And uh, I remember going back during one of our reunions and being like, it's somebody's office. Like, it was here. So, <laughs> I will just say that my senior year, my parents started paying attention and they did not let me go. In. They denied me permission. And Mrs. Gilpin actually kicked me out of the Goodwin House butt room at one point, And that was a devastating blow. Wow. I never smoked a cigarette. Yeah. I, like, I wasn't smoking at the time at all. <laughs> I did like, pick up social smoking at other points in my life, but not then. But it was devastating. Meredith, how did you explain to your parents when you came home smelling like smoke every day? It's like, <laughs> it wasn't but, every day. but I don't smoke. It's like, sure you don't. It was. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Here's uh, one more. That's, that's why boarding, I would just like to say, is yep. the only boarder in this group. That was why boarding was great, because you didn't have to tell your parents anything. Mm. <laughs> See, we missed out on so much. Uh, oh. One more commercial, the final one. This is from sort of the world of technology. CA Video Disc asks, which is your favorite? So an ad for RCA Video Discs. Chances are you could see your favorite movie, concert, and more on an RCA Video Disc player tonight. Already there are over 500 <laughs> great shows. Chances are. All with an incredible picture, some in stereo. And best of all, if you buy a player now, your RCA dealer will give you two of your RCA favorites free. That's right, two free. But hurry. Can you believe that that was hailed as the next big thing? But what happened to Betamax? I, thought, <laughs> I remember Betamax being the thing in the 80s. For about 15 minutes. I don't minutes. remember that. Later. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, and some of them were in stereo. Yeah. Some were in stereo. <laughs> video desk thing, I missed that completely. Yeah, we I missed the way video behind. Well, it, it, that, that really it. never caught on. <laughs> I think Betamax might have caught on for about six months, but video discs. And listeners, you couldn't see the ad, but the discs are as big as vinyl right. albums. Right. And so that was supposed to be the next if big thing. you know thing. what an album is. Well, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. I've loved lying down on the couch and like listening to albums and reading the lyrics and yeah, the liner the notes, the liner. You notes. would just put it on repeat. It would play again. You'd go through your songs. It play it again right. and again. <laughs> well, we've got to run here on the link, but we with the, maybe a couple minutes left. 
Meredith, do you want to pose your favorite yeah. question to our guest and yeah. see what she says? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so, Eliza, if you yeah. could tell your high school self something, what would it be? And concurrently, <laughs> what would your high school self think of all that you've done now? Objection, Your Honor. Compound question. Another time, maybe. Um, yeah. I hope that my, I, it's interesting. I wonder if my high school self would feel proud. I hope she would. I think she would. I think, you know, I did go through a moment where I was like, it is unlikely that I'm going to be president of the United States. So I'm letting everybody down. So I, I did have, I had a, a crisis around that. You got plenty of time. Point. You got plenty of you time. You do still have time, yes. Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> come on. Seriously. So I, I hope she'd be proud. I think, you know, at the time, I remember particularly, it was right after our graduation that Bowers versus Hardwick came down. And I think what I'd like to tell myself is that you will be able to change this. And, and in doing so, your relationships with other people will become deeper and better. And I think probably the thing that I think about with respect to my high school versus my college experience was the cost of not being known to everybody as fully as I might have been. But again, we were adolescents, so what the heck, right? We were all managing who the hell are we and being known in one dimension or another. So, yeah, you're going to be able to change this. And because you're going to – I always thought that I would either yeah, – I told Mr. Banderob when I came out to him, I was like, well, I figure I'll get as far as I need to in my career, and then I'll come out and my career will be over. And I also said to him, you know, everyone tells me I should be president. I can't be president because I'm a lesbian. And he was very sweet in his response. He was like, well, wouldn't you rather be a happy senator than an unhappy president? <laughs> I was like, well, you're still like setting the <laughs> 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 things like a little too high. So, but I also would just say to myself and anyone else in our class who, I wish I could, anyone else in our class who was really worried about the forces they saw arrayed against them for any reason that because of what we learned here and because of who we know here and because of the fact that we've been here, we actually have a bit of a head start when it comes to trying to undo this. And if you stay connected to what you've learned in this place and these people, you actually have a good running start for changing the world in some good ways. And I don't know. I mean, that, uh, it, means so, it means so much to me to be talking to you all. So. Eliza, we need to take that clip and like send it to everyone. I, know. I just think that's so, yeah. so powerful. And Wait, was I supposed to be recording that part? Oh, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this podcast is not sponsored by Milton in any way, shape or form. But there's so, so much value at this moment, having gone through a year of pandemic where we're all in our early 50s we're looking at what was and what will be there's not a there's not a member of our class i am sure that did not suffer some kind of loss in this past year because of what we've all gone through with health and isolation and 
many other things, but it's powerful. I think that what we're seeing in the conversations, Eliza, is much of what you said that, yeah, I mean, when we weren't all, we didn't all know each other super, super well, but there is a bond and a connection for the time and place that we went through, the experience of the education and what we've learned from it. And I think what I've heard in the conversations with you and in others, it's that respect that we have for our peers who have opened up to tell us how they were feeling in high school and what they've done with their lives. And we can't thank you enough for being so honest and and caring in the way in which you've described your experience at Milton, but more importantly, the trajectory of your incredibly beautiful life and the incredible things that you're doing for our world. And and thank you for that. We're all very proud to know you, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> yes. And when well, you decide and... to run, just let us know. We'll yeah, no you. pressure. No, no pressure. pressure. It's not something we remember. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Eliza, let me echo what Farah said. You were awesome. And I hope you had a little bit of fun, too. It's, it's, it's just such a pleasure to get to reconnect. And I, I regret that, well, we'll see what the pandemic means for a reunion, but I really hope that people take the time to reconnect and just acknowledge the power and the importance of what we were given by being able to go to the place, but the responsibility to do something with it, because I think we can all do something with it. So just, you know, over time, you know, I just, and again, remember people that I bet Sorry, Diana, but just from what you said, we were all really aware of each other. So maybe there's someone that you know didn't have the same, didn't have a positive experience of the place. And maybe that person, empathy for that person can cause you to think about what you could change for someone like them now, right? Absolutely. To make it better. Well put. Yeah. Make a connection. Yes. Make a link. Because whoever came up with the name for this podcast... At the you know. prescience. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, Eliza. We do Thank have to you, run, but Diana and Meredith, you guys did okay today. No, you guys were fantastic as well. Thanks You're for okay, thank you. So Eliza, we love you and thank you love so so much. Oh. Thank okay. you, thank you, listeners, for listening to the link. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast and leave a review if you dig it. Share it with a friend, share it with someone in the Milton community or anyone you know who digs all this high school nostalgia stuff. Thanks again to our guest, Eliza Byard, who was simply awesome. All of her information will be in the show notes and how to contribute to Glisten and all that stuff. Thanks for listening to the link. We'll see you next time.